copy. We're going to be in the Old Testament this morning to start, and then we'll move to the New Testament. The Old Testament was written before Jesus came, and the New Testament after Jesus came. We'll be in the book of 2 Kings, 2 Kings chapter 5. If you need to use the table of contents, uh, there's no shame in that. That's at the front of your Bible, 2 Kings chapter 5, that's where we'll be Today, um, we are talking again about what happens when God shows up. That's the title of our series that we're in right now, What Happens When God Shows Up, and we're taking a look at an Old Testament passage and a New Testament passage, and we're asking the question, uh, is the God of the Old Testament the same as the God of the New? Sometimes it seems uh, that uh, they're different. Are they different? What happens? What actually happens when God shows up? And, And what we've seen so far is that what happens is something so much deeper than just a spiritual experience. And in our city, um, though we are a historically unchurched city, one of the most in all the land, uh, we do like spirituality. And the question is, is spirituality the same as when God shows up, the God of the Old and the New Testament? So we've been asking those questions. And, And I'll just sort of steal your aha. Today we'll be talking about when God shows up, he heals Or at least he can heal. And I just wanted to start uh, by sharing a story, and and I've been researching this, studying this all week, and there's stories from around the world, millions of people would say, that are living today, that they've experienced God's healing power. But I thought it's one thing to just talk about that in the abstract, it's another thing, has God healed in my life? And so, I couldn't believe I hadn't thought of it until literally this morning, standing in the shower, and God reminded me of his healing power in my life. But he hasn't always healed. My son Owen was born uh, almost a year ago, November 7th, and before Ali became pregnant with Owen... Um, and I've shared this before, so if you've been around, you know this. Uh, we experienced a miscarriage about a year before we found out she was pregnant with our now son, Owen. And we lost our child, and we went in. Uh, we have a, a four-year-old named Grayson, and so this would have been our second child. And we went into the doctors and for our first visit at 10 weeks. And um, if you've never done this before, they'll... They'll look for a heartbeat, and uh, they didn't find one, uh, and it devastated us. And we asked, "Why would God let this happen?" Well, of course, a year uh, goes by, and then Allie gets pregnant again, and we're worried. <laughs> we're fearing bad news. Um, I preached a sermon about this, if you wanted to go back and and find it online, in the Psalms about uh, how God uses bad news to teach us something about him. Um, And I was so terrified to go into that 10-week appointment. And I walked, we walked in and we sat down and we were, to be honest, doubting God and we were still a little bit angry at him. And, And the doctor comes in and they do the ultrasound and, you know, they have it on a speaker, and so you can hear it, and, and we hear a heartbeat. And in that moment, our hearts leapt, and our faith was filled. And 
we forgave God. And then the doctor, after they do that, um, do a measurement. And they did a measurement. And, and if you've been married, and particularly if you're married with one kid, you tend to be very, <laughs> you know exactly when you conceived. So we knew exactly when we conceived. And so we were sure this was a 10-week appointment. And the doctor said, the baby's only measuring at six weeks. And her face fell. There was no hope in her eyes, though she said words of encouragement. Maybe you don't have the date right of conception. And we said, is there any other reason why the baby would be measuring? And she said, no, I've never. Um, and she checked again and again. And, and so the baby, our son Owen, was only measuring at six when he was supposed to be at at least 10 or maybe even 11. And so our, our hearts dropped again, and we grieved as if we'd lost another child. And it just so happened that we were going on a trip to Hawaii, a family vacation uh, that week, and so she said, come back in after the trip. And, and basically, we're sitting in the most beautiful place in the world, grieving the loss of another child. And we come back in, and very small amount of hope and they do another ultrasound and they hear a heartbeat still. This was about 10 days later. And then the doctor's face lights up and she says, I don't know how to explain this, but the baby's measuring now 12 weeks and Allie and I we were like, you know, our scientific minds, my wife's a nurse, I'm a bit of a skeptic myself. I said, what could explain this? And she's like, literally, I don't know. I've never seen this before. And we're like, come on, give us something, doctor. You know, did you misdiagnose what? And she says, no. And I said, because this is who I am, I said, We've had a lot of people praying for us. Is there any chance this is a miracle? And she smiled and, you know, she said, I don't know, you know. I believe it was a miracle. I believe God healed Owen. And some combination of, of intercessory prayer, Hawaiian barbecue, and the grace of God uh, powerfully healed Owen and whatever was keeping him from growing. And what's funny, if you know Owen, and I've talked about this before, he literally hasn't stopped growing faster than a normal baby. He's been in the 99th percentile in weight since he was born. He's gigantic. He probably will always grow faster. Um, so feel free to stop praying if, you <laughs> if you've been praying, you know, like, on a budget here, we can't feed the kid Hawaiian barbecue all the time. So that is God's healing hand in our life. And I, but I want you to hear this. He didn't do that with the child we lost the year before. And I don't understand why sometimes he heals and sometimes he doesn't. But I do know that he heals and he has the power to heal. And this is what we've been doing, looking at these patterns of God showing up 
and how it's so deep and how even in him showing up in our life to heal Owen, he's giving us and converting our identity over and over to an identity of faith. And that's what we've been saying he does. He doesn't just give us an experience or the feels or new insight. He literally changes our identity. And so we've looked the last two weeks. He comes into our life and he gives us a new purpose. He repurposes us. That's a part of our identity. And last week we looked at he reassociates us. We said you're no longer associated with your sin. Now you're associated with your Savior. That's a part of your new identity. And when we look at these patterns, what we see is both a predictive and a descript or a diagnostic element. Predictive meaning like this is how he's always done it. So you can predict that if you accept his offer of new identity, he will give you new purpose. He will reassociate you, not with your sin, but with your Savior. We've also said it's diagnostic. You can ask yourselves, has God truly shown up in my life if I don't feel like I have a new identity? If I don't feel like I have a new purpose? If I don't feel like I'm associated with my Savior rather than with my sin? And so there's a predictive and a diagnostic element to looking at the Word of God and asking, how does God act when he shows up? And how can I experience that in my life or know if I'm experiencing that as I should? So this is what we'll do again here today. And we'll look at these two stories, one in the Old Testament and one in the New Testament, about God's healing power. And I'll just say this up front. The The Greek word in the New Testament for save, so when it says Jesus saves, that same word, sozo, is actually used or can be defined or translated as heals. So the same word for saves and heals. So God showing up, Jesus showing up, is always about saving, and saving is about healing. So we get to look at that today. Okay, so 2 Kings chapter 5. Our two stories will center around one particular type of disease, and I know there's so many types of disease, but we're going to look at this one in particular, and that's cleansing healing from leprosy. Now, leprosy was a word that was used of almost all skin diseases in the Old and the New Testament. They didn't quite have the same uh, understanding of skin disease that we do today. And so where you go to see what happens with cases of leprosy is uh, particularly in the Old Testament and with the people of God, the nation of Israel, which again is the same context of the New Testament, is Leviticus 13. So I'm just gonna read you a little bit. You could turn there if you want. Leviticus 13 tells us what happens uh, with leprosy. God said this when he's giving the law to Moses. The Lord spoke to Moses and said, uh, sorry, to Moses and Aaron, saying, when a person has a skin on his body, or sorry, when a person has on the skin of his body a swelling or an eruption or a spot, and it turns into a case of leprous disease on the skin of his body, then he shall be brought to Aaron the priest or to one of his sons the priests. And the priest shall examine the diseased area of the skin of his body, and if the hair in the diseased area has turned white and the disease appears to be deeper than the skin of his body, it is a case of leprous disease. When the priest has examined him, he shall pronounce him unclean, But if the spot is white in the skin of his body and appears no deeper than the skin and the hair in it has not turned white, the priest shall shut up the diseased person for seven days, exile for seven days, and the priest shall examine him on the seventh day. And if in his eyes the disease is checked, means, uh, and the disease has not spread in the skin, then the priest shall shut him up for another seven days, let's make sure, and the priest shall examine him again on on the seventh day, 
And if the disease area has faded and the disease has not spread in the skin, then the priest shall pronounce him clean. It is only an eruption, and he shall wash his clothes and be clean. But if the eruption spreads in the skin, after he has shown himself to the priest for his cleansing, he shall appear again before the priest, and the priest shall look. And if the eruption has spread in the skin, then the priest shall pronounce him unclean. It is a leprous disease. People were worried about the spread of these contagious diseases. and This has actually not gone away. There are still places in the world where there are leper colonies. In Hawaii in particular, speaking of Hawaii, on Molokai. And um, it's understandable. <laughs> I, lo- I love this passage. Part of why I wanted to read it is like priests were the dermatologists of the old, of the, of the old days. Don't come to me with your <laughs> bumps, by the way. But it's sort of interesting. We've really fallen a long way, <laughs> pastors and priests. But, you know, this, is, this, this happens still today. It, it, some of you know this, um, and I asked my wife if I could share this. Um, we went through a leprosy scare ourselves over the last two weeks. And um, we're clean now. I've... <laughs> we, and what's funny, though, is um, Allie and Grayson both got some spots on their bodies, some bumps, and she went to the dermatologist, and they said, come back in seven days, and <laughs> they came back in seven days, and they said, let's wait another seven, see if it spreads. I'm like, you're just stealing from Leviticus 13. <laughs> He's like, I'm like, is he just got his Bible down there? He's like, uh, is there any, is the hair white? <laughs> no. Um, it's, it's so interesting. They, we still don't really understand the skin very well, but... Um, it's gone away, but what we realized in this, in, in, in this experience is that it's not just the pain, but the unknown of disease, and in particular leprosy or skin disease. It creates isolation and uncertainty, a feeling that you're unclean, that you're unlovable, that you damage goods, that you're a threat, that you're a weirdo. Like, this is what happens when people experience the brokenness of the body, In particular, we see this happening in cases of leprosy. This happened in the Old Testament, and this, as we'll see, happens in the New Testament. And it continues to happen to this day. You know, think about skin disease. And it's it's sort of a fascinating reality that things haven't changed that much. Now, what what do you do if you If you do have a leprous disease, in chapter 14 it tells us, let me just read it to you, the Lord spoke to Moses saying, this shall be the law of the leprous person from the day of his cleansing. So once he's been cleansed, he shall be brought to the priest and the priest shall go out of the camp and the priest shall look. Then if the case of leprous disease is healed in the leprous person, the priest shall command them to take from him, um, uh, to take for him who is to be cleansed two live clean birds and cedar wood and scarlet yarn and hyssop. And the priest shall command them to kill one of the birds in the earthenware vessel over fresh water. He shall take the live bird with cedar wood and the scarlet yarn of the hyssop and dip them in the live, uh, the live bird in the blood of the bird that was killed over the fresh water. And he shall sprinkle it seven times on him who is to be cleansed of the leprous disease. Then he shall pronounce him clean and he shall let the living bird go into the open field. And he who is to be cleansed shall wash his clothes and shave all of his hair and bathe himself in water, and he shall be clean. And after that, he may come into the camp. Restoration. Renewal. But look, even, even then, the, there was this 
um, ritual that included the need for dramatic sacrifice. Just keep that. Just keep that in the back of your head as we go. This was the law of God, and he'd given it to the people of Israel. But why? Now, we come to 2 Kings chapter 5, and we get to read a story, actually not about a person of Israel, but we get to read a story about a man of Syria. So here we go. Are you with me? 2 Kings chapter 5. Naaman, commander of the army of the king of Syria, was a great man with his master and in high favor, because by him the Lord had given victory to Syria. He was a mighty man of valor, but he was a leper. Now the Syrians... On one of their raids, one of their raids of Israel, so they were an enemy of Israel, had carried off a little girl from the land of Israel, and she worked in the service of Naaman's wife. She said to her mistress, would that my Lord were with the prophet who is in Samaria, Samaria being the northern kingdom of Israel. So Naaman went in and told his Lord, Told the king, thus and so spoke the girl from the land of Israel, and the king of Syria said, "Go now, and I will send a letter to the king of Israel." What's going on here? You have to, you have to, you have to be a thinker and understand literature and try to to put yourself in this place. Here is a girl who is taken during a raid, during war. She's taken into the custody of the Syrians and she becomes a slave. We talked about a beautiful, wonderful woman of God last week in Rahab. And here we have another young girl who just displays so much grace and mercy and God's love flowing through her that that we almost miss it because we just read it kind of fast. She's stolen from her homeland and come and is enslaved, working and living in the house of a Syrian uh, war general. And she sees that he has leprosy and she has compassion on him. Don't, don't miss that. Read it slowly. What has gotten into her? How do you love? Jesus says love not just your friends, but your enemies. Here we have a woman young girl who models that for us so beautifully. I don't, I don't want to rush by that. And, he's, and she says, hey, master, I, I know somebody who might be able to help you. He's a prophet of the living God. Unreal, unreal. Now, another note that's just so interesting here, uh, clearly, different from in the land of Israel where if you have leprosy, they sort of put you to the side. Here we have a top official in the government of Syria who has leprosy. What does this mean? Does it mean that the Syrians here are the picture of inclusivity and grace? (laughs) That's what it seems like at first. And I don't think that's what we should take from it. Clearly, his co-workers, even the king, had looked past his leprosy because he was really good at his job. 
But, but what I think we should take from this here is that when we read the Word of God, God has given us Leviticus 13 and 14 and to understand what we're to do in cases of leprosy, to, to understand the risk of contagious disease, that actually the law and revelation of God helps us to see the brokenness of the world more clearly. Clearly in Syria, they didn't understand the brokenness of the world. They sort of almost accepted the brokenness of the world as the way it will always be. Different from that, the people of God recognize and have compassion on those who are broken, but then they say it doesn't have to stay this way. We can fix the brokenness because we know a God who created it and he can put it back together again. Do you see the difference there? It's sort of a nuance, but it's not that the Syrians are somehow on a higher moral state. It's just literally they don't believe that you can fix brokenness. So we can say this, the law of God and even, even the revelation of nature through modern medicine and things like that actually helps us to see brokenness for what it is. And God says, don't call broken or don't call whole what is broken. So we don't, we don't just say, oh, this is the way it is. This is the way it always has to be. This is why we, we, we should push for and fight for modern medicine to continue to cure the brokenness of the world. While at the same time, we say, God, come into our midst and heal the land, heal the people, put it back together, renew it all. Okay? It's sort of interesting to me. So I wanted to stop, that there's a leper at the very top levels of government. So let's keep reading. King gives him a letter to take to the king of Israel so that the king of Israel might be able to help him because this young girl said there was a prophet in the land of Samaria. Again, see how they misinterpret. They don't understand how power works. And this will come out here. Look at it, verse, uh, middle of verse 5. So when, so he went, taking with him ten talents of silver, six thousand shekels of gold, and ten changes of clothing. And he brought the letter to the king of Israel, which read, quote, When this letter reaches you, know that I have sent you Naaman, my servant, that you may cure him of his leprosy. Makes sense. Take a ton of money, <laughs> and we'll buy our way to a cure. And we'll go to the king, because he's the most powerful person in the land of Israel. So the king will be able to do it. Verse 7, and when the king of Israel read the letter, he tore his clothes, which is a sign of lament, and and, and he's he's crying out, he's saying, no, what are you doing? And he said this, quote, am I God to kill and make alive that this man's word... that this man sends word to me to cure a man of leprosy. Only consider and see how he is seeking a quarrel with me. (laughs) This is what the king of Israel assumes is happening. What? I'm just a king of Israel. I'm nothing. I'm not the God of life and death. He's sending me an impossible request that I won't be able to fulfill, probably because he wants to invade my land. That's how the king of Israel understands it because he's like he he's 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 jewish he knows the one true god that can heal he says i'm not a god you see how power is misunderstood who has power verse 8 but when elisha the man of god elisha was a prophet in the land of israel 
powerful prophet. You can read all about him in 2 Kings. It's fantastic. When Elisha, the man of God, heard that the king of Israel had torn his clothes, he sent to the king, saying, Why have you torn your clothes? Let him, that's tell Naaman, to come now to me, that he may know that there is a prophet in Israel. Verse 9, So Naaman came with his horses and chariots and stood at the door of Elisha's house. Again, you got to put yourself into the narrative. Picture this. One of the most powerful men in the ancient Near East, this general of the power, powerful Syrians, comes to the door of a prophet. That's like coming to Pastor Ryan's house. And he comes with all of his chariots and his big, you know, giant limousine, and, and he's got all these other cars and secret service all around him, and he pulls up to Pastor Ryan's house. Verse 10, and Elisha, the prophet, sent a messenger to him. This is what I need you to picture. They pull up to Pastor Ryan's house, limousines, a whole uh, team of security guards, and Ryan sends out Lucy <laughs> with a message. <laughs> written in crayon on a piece of paper. And, <laughs> and comes out, he doesn't even come out himself. And this is what the letter says. Go and wash in the Jordan, that's the Jordan River, seven times and your flesh shall be restored and you shall be clean. You need to see the irony at play here. This is the the power of scripture and narrative. The apparent power of Naaman and his money and his wealth and his entourage comes up to this tiny little prophet's house and the prophet doesn't even come outside and he says, go wash in the Jordan River. You'll be fine. It's kind of like Lord of the Rings, right, when they all come uh, to the hobbit's house and, and, and the hobbit, it's like this, pow- this dynamic, the scriptures are always trying to open up our eyes to where real power is because we always miss it. And Naaman's so furious, look at this, verse 11, but Naaman was angry and he went away saying, behold, I thought that he would surely come out to me and stand and call upon the name of the Lord his God and wave his hand over the place and cure the leper. And then he says, Are not Abana and Fafra, the rivers of Damascus, better than the waters of Israel? He's saying, We've got rivers in our own. Why did I come all the way down here to go swimming? Could I not wash in them and be clean? So he turned and went away in rage. Fascinating. So why doesn't Elisha come out and wave his hand and and give Naaman the experience that he thought he was going to get? Well, because God doesn't work like that. And and Elisha knows that. He likes to surprise us when he heals. He likes to show us who has the power. If Elisha comes out, and that's what Naaman was expecting, and that's what the prophets of Syria would have done and taken all the credit for it, Naaman would have been confused. Who has the power, Elisha or God? Elisha knows. He has no power in himself. So he's going to show that to Naaman by saying, I'm not even going to come out to you. I'm going to just send you down to the river and God will heal you. God can and does heal in a variety of ways. Miraculous healing through doctors and surgeons, through natural restorative processes of the human body which he has created. And sometimes he's going to surprise us. We think he's going to do it this way, and he does it this way. Just to remind us, his power cannot be controlled. And Naaman gets 
a firsthand glimpse of this. Goes away in rage. Verse 13, but his servant, that's Naaman's servant, came near and said to him, quote, my father, it is a great word the prophet has spoken to you. Will you not do it? Has he actually said to you, wash and be clean? Verse 14, so he, that's Naaman, went down and dipped himself seven times in the Jordan River, according to the word of the man of God, and his flesh was restored like the flesh of a little child, and he was clean. Wow. God did show up, just not how Naaman thought he would. Now look at this. This is important. We look at Naaman and we say, oh man, he has no faith. Not true. Even though he reluctantly goes and he needs his servant, again, think flipping of power, now it's his servant that becomes the great wisdom-filled prophetic person in his life. Maybe you should go, but he does go. Doesn't matter how you get there. He goes to the river and he is cleansed. So Naaman does have new faith. We've always said that. New identity is preceded by new faith. He has faith, even though it's reluctant faith and it's confusing faith, he has faith to go to the river and his faith leads to his healing. Fascinating. Verse 15. Then he returned to the man of God, he and all his company, and he came and he stood before him and he said, behold, I know that there is no God in all the earth but in Israel. So accept now a present from your servant. But he, that's Elisha, said, As the Lord lives before whom I stand, I will receive none. And he urged him, he urged Naaman to take it. Oh, sorry, he refused him. Uh, He said, take it. Naaman says, take it, take it. And Elisha says, no, 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 no. Then Naaman said, if not, please let there be given to your servant two mule loads of earth, For from now on, your servant will not offer burnt offerings or sacrifice to any God, but to Yahweh, to the one living God of Israel. Verse 18, in this matter, may the Lord pardon your servant when your master goes into the house of Rimmon to worship there, kneeling on my arm, and I bow myself to the house of Rimmon, and I bow myself in the house of Rimmon, the Lord pardon your servant in this matter. And he said to him, go in peace. This is fascinating. Here's a man who grew up not in Israel, not believing there was one God, but believing there was many gods, who's often sacrificed and worshiped those gods, who has probably experienced the power of spirituality through uh, the worship of these idols. He comes to experience the power, the healing power of the one true God, and he gets it. He had faith enough to go into the river. Once he experienced God's powers, his faith increased And he says, I will worship no other God. And what he's saying here when he's talking about going to the house of Rimmon, he's saying, I'm probably still going to have to follow the king into the house, but I want you to forgive me because I know I'm worshiping an idol and not the one true God. So he has a depth of faith here that's really fascinating because just earlier on in the narrative, he really didn't get it who this God was, but when he experiences his power, he does. So faith increases, leads to more faith leads to this exclusivity of worship, which is part of the new identity that we worship no one else except the one true God. And he tries to pay Elisha for it, and Elisha says, no, you cannot buy the grace of God. It's free. Take your money, take it away, 
You cannot purchase this from me. And so he goes away, and I'll just paraphrase the end of the story, because the end of the story is sad. One of Elisha, the prophet of Israel, one of his servants, chases after Naaman after Elisha has sent them away. We don't, you don't pay for grace. So Naaman has a very clear picture of what grace is. But his, but, but his servant sneaks out and chases him and ends up taking some of that money, saying, I'll take it. And Naaman, new to the faith, doesn't really understand how this works, so he says, okay, I mean, I'm, I've been healed. Like, this is nothing. It's, it's not everything that he had brought to give to Elisha, but it's just some of it. And the servant thinks that he can take it, and nobody will ever know. And he thinks, this can't be a bad thing. God, God would want me to, to have some things because of the work I do with Elisha. And he comes back. And if you look at verse 27 of chapter 5, it says this. Because of what he did, therefore the leprosy of Naaman shall cling to you, the servant, and to your descendants forever. For he went out of his presence a leper like snow. So here you have a Syrian not born into the family of God that comes to know God and is cleansed. And here you have the servant of a mighty prophet who has seen the mighty powers of God now with leprosy because he has confused the grace of God. I was talking to a pastor friend of mine this week. Man, that seems like a harsh, that seems like a harsh, harsh punishment. For just wanting a little bit of money, he was probably dirt poor. He's hanging around with Elisha. <laughs> it's not good for business, you know? It's like, he just wants a little bit to probably feed himself and his family. And he gets leprosy, and his descendants are cursed forever. That seems harsh. Why is that so harsh? Well, you need to understand something. Life, when we read the scriptures, when we preach, primarily... This is all an education about what the grace of God actually is. My job is to help us understand what the grace of God is. Your job is to help the world understand what the grace of God is. And it's so confusing to people. They're like Naaman. They think you should probably have to pay for it because it's so great. And even once they've experienced it, they think I should probably pay him back. And that's not grace. And so our job, if you're a Christian in the room, our job is to again and again and again remind people, learn ourselves and then remind people what grace actually is. It cannot be bought. It is a free gift. And here we have the servant confusing Naaman. He's gotten the clearest picture of grace. You cannot buy it. God has healed you. And then it gets confused by this servant, assistant, to the prophet, who he probably thinks speaks for the prophet, and he's confused grace, and his punishment is harsh. Do not confuse grace for people. Do not anything, add anything to it. Do not add the church to it. Do not add your own ministry to it. Do not add finances to it. The grace of God is free and clear of everything. It is grace alone and Christ alone, nothing else. And to confuse that in God's eyes, is worth the punishment of leprosy. It's fascinating. It's always been about grace, even in the Old Testament. Do not muddy the waters of grace. 
is an unforgivable sin. So that's the story of Naaman. In his life, he had one identity as a great war general in the Syrian army who worshipped many gods, had much power, but also had leprosy. God shows up in his life. He is cleansed and healed of his leprosy and given a new identity as a worshiper of God alone. Fantastic. When God shows up, he gives you new identity and he renews you. He renews you. That's a part of a new identity. You're renewed. Let's look at the New Testament now. So if you have your scriptures open to the Gospel of Luke, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. These are the four accounts of Jesus' life, his ministry, his death, and his resurrection. We have four paralleled accounts that all highlight slightly different parts of Jesus' life and ministry and teaching, though, though much of it overlaps. And, and what you need to know about the Gospels of, of Jesus is that 25% of them recount Jesus' healing ministry. And what we've said is, if the New Testament is true and Jesus is God in the flesh, we should expect him to do the things that God does in the Old Testament if he's God in the flesh. So we ask the question, does he do these same things? So we're going to look at a story here in Luke chapter 5. Luke chapter 5, verse 12. Here's some pages turning. So as you're getting, let me just tell you this about Luke because I think this is important. Luke, from what we can tell, most scholars would agree, whether they're Christian or non-Christian scholars, Luke appears to be a medical doctor. That seems to be what his profession was before he started following Jesus, and probably as he was following Jesus, continued to practice medicine. Why is that important? He understands how to tell when things are broken and when things are being fixed. So here you don't have somebody like me who knows little about medicine. You have my wife, who is a nurse. She's the one looking at it. She can tell when things are getting better and when they're not. He's a medical doctor. He's not some naive person. He understands better than most in his day physical ailment. Okay, so here, here we go. Luke 5, verse 12. While he, that's Jesus, was in one of the cities, there came a man full of leprosy. And when he saw Jesus, he fell on his face and begged him, Lord, if you, if you will, you can make me clean. And Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him, saying, I will be clean. And immediately the leprosy left the, left the man. And Jesus charged him to tell no one and said this, Go, show yourself to the priest, make an offering for your cleansing, as Moses commanded. And so the man would have thought about Leviticus 13 to 14, which we read. For proof to them that you are in fact healed. But now, even more the report about him, that's Jesus, went abroad. And great crowds gathered to hear him and to be healed of their infirmities. Then this is interesting, and we'll come to this in a second. But he, that's Jesus, would withdraw to desolate places and pray. Let me just point out a few things. This is pretty obvious, the story. We have a story of a leper who's healed by Jesus, and Jesus here touches him, different than Elisha, that says, go down to the river. 
He says, nope, it's through me. Jesus has no problem saying, I'm the one with the power because he saw himself as the son of God, so he clearly has a God complex. <laughs> the question is, was he right or was he wrong? He clearly believed himself to be God. He touches him, I will heal you. I do will it. I am God, be clean, and the man is clean. He says, go show it to the priest, prove it to them. The story spreads, Jesus healed a man of leprosy, apparently because the priest said, yep, he's clean. So his story had a lot of street cred, and everybody knew, so they came and brought their infirmities to Jesus. Again, no exchange of money. You cannot buy God's grace. Fascinating. But here's a question to ask yourself. Why does Jesus withdraw to desolate places and pray? Doesn't he want everyone who comes to him to be healed? I think this teaches something. I think Luke's putting it in here for a reason. When they're coming to him, coming to him, he says, Jesus withdrew. I think it's important to remember that physical healing, even now, is so important. And and I, I will say it, God heals now. But it is not the primary reason that God showed up in the person of Jesus. What was the primary reason? The primary reason was to make atonement for the sins of his people. So that one day the kingdom of God could come in full. And when the kingdom of God comes in full, not just in part, there will be no sickness, no leprosy, no cancer, no depression. None of it. And so Jesus understood his mission in this moment was not to heal each and every person that came to him, but it was to heal the problem that made all the problems, which is sin in the world. Jesus came to die, and he knew that. He had compassion. He would want to heal every one of their infirmities, but he realized that would only just put a Band-Aid on the problem. He needed to fix the problem, and that required his death on the cross. Here's a little mini application. We must never equate the mission of God now only with physical healing. That is still only a part of God's mission. And it's a part in the sense that it shows us what the full kingdom will be like. Does that make sense? So Jesus came to heal, and he healed some, but not all, because he's saying, when I accomplish my work, and I come back in full, and the kingdom is in full, what you saw in part will happen in full. Does that make sense? So he gave us just a foretaste, just this is what it will be like, a man that had leprosy that no longer has leprosy. He came to die. That's what he came to do. So that he might what? rise and what did his rising prove that disease and injury and accident and even death itself do not hold the trump card God does you see that sure he can heal leprosy but he can do so much more than that and this means a lot to me I know many of us have lost people in the room. Uh, Many many of us have lost people to cancer. 
to other diseases, to heart disease and lung disease and all sorts of things. My story, as most of you know, I lost my sister to an accident. She was hit by a semi-truck and killed instantly. I didn't get to pray for her. I didn't get to beg God to heal her. What's my recourse? My recourse is the resurrection. And so I, I've been saying this for years, and I'll just share it. And I, I, hope, I hope you hear what I'm saying. We need to raise money for research. And we need to pray for God to give us the wisdom as our medical community. And there's so many in this medical community. In our community, they're in the medical community. Seattle is revolutionary in finding cure. We need to continue to do that. But we have to be honest. Is there any recourse for death itself? And so... Things, uh, every time I see like a poster for the obliteride or something like that, which is about finding a cure for cancer, I say, yes, God, find a cure for cancer. And then I say, I need to start a ride called the resurrection ride, because <laughs> we need to find a cure for death as well. So we need to do both. We need to fight and fund Healing now, and we need to be honest like Jesus was, that unless we fix the problem of sin, death will never go away. We need a blitter ride and resurrection ride. We need them both. And we should be as God's people pursuing both, telling people about the resurrection of Jesus and funding and helping and using our minds and skills and talents and energies to find cures now, because that's what Jesus did. He did both. But let's not pull the wool over our eyes and think that there's anybody that's beaten death except for the King of Kings. When God shows up for the leper in Luke chapter 5, in the person of Jesus, he gives healing and he gives new identity. It's clear this man believes that Jesus has the power to heal as he falls to his knees and he begs him to make him clean. And Jesus does. His new faith leads to healing, to being renewed, which is all a part of his new identity as a follower of Jesus. And he went around telling everybody what God had done for him through Jesus. He said, God showed up. His name is Jesus. Go see him. And many came to see him. So let me give you three applications, because what we've said is we see God in the Old Testament, we see him in the New Testament, the person of Jesus, and then Jesus leaves again. He leaves in an ultimate way. He ascends to heaven, and it says, the scriptures say he's sitting at the right hand of God. What is he doing? He goes there so that he could send his spirit, because he wants much healing to happen, and he knows if he's isolated in one person, Jesus of Nazareth, he'll only be able to do so much healing. If he sends his spirit to all his people, that's me and you, and he works powerfully through us, he can heal many more. So he does that today. So three applications. The first application is that Jesus heals today through his spirit, working powerfully through his people. If you have received the gift of grace and have a new identity in Jesus Christ, the scriptures tell us 
that you have the Spirit living inside you, the same Spirit that healed the leper in Luke 5, the same Spirit that healed Naaman in the waters of the Jordan River, lives in you, and God says, go and be my hands and feet, touch people, heal people, and today we'll have a chance to do that. We're going to have five people up in the front. We're going to do four songs at the end. We want to give extended time for people to ask for prayer for healing. Again, God doesn't always heal, but if we don't ask him, he definitely will heal less, okay? He may still heal you even if you don't ask, but why not ask so that we know it's him that's doing it? So we'll have a chance to do that. You can come up here. You can pray for your own healing. You can pray for somebody you know who needs healing. You can thank God for healing that he's done. All of that will be happening because we believe at Sedarius Church that God heals today. And he heals in all three ways, through medicine and surgeons. You can thank God for the medical professionals in your life or in your friend's life. We pray for wisdom for them to see the issue as it is, to find cures, to, to use everything that we're learning through science and modern medicine to bring healing. And guess who gets the credit for that? God. Then we pray for other things, natural cures and healing. We pray for the right medicine, pharmacology, to, to, to help us heal. We pray for wisdom and skill for mental and physical therapists. We pray for all of this. And then we pray for God to work powerfully and supernaturally to heal. Because we think he will heal in all these ways. So we need to ask God to heal us now. We need to ask him to heal us. And he just may heal. He just may heal. And as you're praying for that, I just want you to remember this truth. And this is what we always have to do. He may heal right now in the moment. He may heal in the future. Or he may wait for the resurrection to heal. He's answering the prayer, though. If your prayer is for him to heal your body, even if you have to wait for the resurrection, because scripture promises, Jesus promised, that we too will experience a resurrection like his. So some of us will have to wait. I will have to wait for my sister to be raised from the dead. But God is still answering my prayer. He heals today, if we ask. Second application. You will get sick. People you love will get sick. Don't miss the benefits of illness. What in the world do I mean by that? There's no way around this fact. If you, if you were to read in Leviticus 14, what you'd see is at one point, God says to Moses and Aaron, I'm going to send you into the promised land, the man, land flowing with milk and honey. And then it's the craziest thing. I read it this week. I was like, what? It says this, and I will put some leprosy in some of the houses. I will put leprosy. What in the world is he talking about? I don't know exactly what he's talking about. But I know this, there's no way around the fact, however you think about it, whether you like to think about it as God allows sickness and death in our world, or God decrees sickness or death in our world, however you think about it, there's no letting God off the hook. 
If he can raise Jesus from the dead, if he can cure leprosy, he could do it right now for all of us in an instant. And he doesn't. Why? Is he not powerful enough? Or does he have some other purpose that our minds can't comprehend? I've had to wrestle with this a lot. Why would God allow or put disease and death and accidents and natural disaster into our world if he truly loved us? That is one of the biggest and hardest questions for any of us to ask and answer. And as I struggled with this, I thought to our little tiny example of Allie's skin condition this week. And I realize it's so small compared to other things, but I've experienced other things. So I'm not trying to minimize. I just want you to, because I learned it just in these 14 days that something happened because of God allowing this sickness into our family just in these 14 days. And I know for sure that these are benefits of her sickness. In our marriage, we had taken for granted being able to touch each other, hug each other, hold hands. For 14 days, I did not touch my wife because I'm smart. <laughs> I, did not, I did not touch her. And it was like torture. But I realized what I had. And when I got to hug her again, it was fantastic. When we got to lay on our brand new sofa, which she wasn't allowed to <laughs> sit on while she, you can ask her about that. It was fantastic. That was a benefit. Like we had taken it for granted. With our kids. She wasn't able to touch Owen, who's not even a year old, because we didn't want him to get whatever it was that she had because we didn't know. And when you have a newborn and you're always having to hold them, and especially when they're 99th percentile weight, you can kind of complain a little bit. Like, he's heavy, stop. But we got a new appreciation for just getting to hold and love our children with our community, our friends. We got a new appreciation for the blessing to have people visit our home and sit on our furniture and hug our friends. We couldn't do that for 14 days. With our church coming and worshiping on Sunday, Allie had to miss the last two weeks. And, you know, I think she, it's fair to say she's not always excited about coming to church. Not always. None of us are, especially when she has to listen to me. But she couldn't come, and it was killing her. And she had a new appreciation of getting to worship in the community of God. Now, this is a trivial example, and I know so many of you are going through and have gone through so much worse, but I want to say something. There must be a reason, and we don't always know what it is, why God allows it, but we can know some of the reasons that when we are sick, when we are isolated, when we feel unclean, and we realize that we cannot do it on our own, we will turn to God and beg him to heal us and ask him to show up. And maybe in our desperation, we might find life, not just now, but life eternal because of our illness, because of our sickness, because of our condition, because of the hopelessness and the agony 
and the uncleanness that we feel knowing that we're broken but having no way to fix it ourselves. And what if that leprosy for the man in Luke 5 and for Naaman, though it was painful and uncomfortable and isolating and it made them feel like an outcast in the community, when they saw Jesus Christ or they saw God come near to them, they ran to him knowing that they could not and would never heal themselves. And yet, how many people saw Jesus walk through their town and never even stopped what they were doing to hear what he had to say? I don't know all the reasons, and I cry out to God in anger and frustration as to why he allows it in the lives of people I love, in my life, But I do know when I see death and I see sickness and I see illness, I cry out to God to help in ways that I wouldn't if it did not exist. And at least that I can say that that is a blessing of illness and disease and leprosy. We need God to show up. We must beg for him to show up. And we must thank him when he does and give him the credit and the glory and the praise, for he is the cure to all sickness and death. But it did not come with no cost. It came with the ultimate cost. He shed his own blood. Not two birds being slaughtered. That was foreshadowing. He was the bird. His blood was shed. His blood was sprinkled on us so that we might be made clean, that we might be renewed, that we might have new identity, that we might be brought into the camp again, into the community when we were once far outside of the grace of God. He died so that we might live. He rose from the dead so that we might rise to new life as well. Let's pray. Father God, we ask you now to give us peace in our doubt, in our confusion, when it comes to physical health and healing and disease, God, I know that I have not said everything that I could say. I know that I don't know enough to explain all the reasons why you allow this in your world. So help us in our confusion, or, or if this has created uncertainty, uh, help us to see that you have not stayed far away from our sickness. That you have come near to it. That you have touched us. And that you've taken on yourself all disease and sickness and sin. And it killed you on the cross. And help us to know without a shadow of a doubt that you did not stay dead that you rose from the grave on the third day and that even on that second day, that excruciating second day when we had to wait sitting in that death, that ultimately you did rise. And that as we wait, maybe we're in a second day, that it's excruciating, but that we can trust that we too and those that we love that know and cling to you will be raised to life again. We pray this in Jesus.